0: Okay, so we are in Hosea. Tonight we're just going to cover the first few chapters, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll cover the rest of it. Uh, So Hosea uh, was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. Some of you know this, maybe most of you know this, but uh, Israel, of course, was started as one united kingdom. David succeeded Saul as king and became... that That was Israel's golden age. He led them to their greatest victories militarily. They were the biggest they ever were under David. And then Solomon came along and Solomon was a wise ruler and they became very wealthy. They became the glory of the Middle East, you might say. People would come from all around, from northern Africa and from other parts to just see their glory. Well, after Solomon, Solomon's son was Rehoboam. One of the real knuckleheads of the Bible, in my opinion, uh, Rehoboam uh, was confronted by a guy named Jeroboam. Don't let that confuse you. But Jeroboam was a was a young man who had worked under Solomon and then run afoul of the king and and run away. Well, he comes back saying, "Well, I represent the northern ten tribes of Israel, and we're asking you to lessen the taxes. Your father put all these taxes on us because he's always building all this stuff. He built the temple. He built his palace. He's always building, building, building." Well. We're asking you just give us a little bit of break. And so Rehoboam said, well, let me, let me talk to my counselors and see what they say. So he talked to his counselors. These were all the old men who served his father. They said, you know, you don't really have to give in to them completely, but if you just give a little, if you just listen to them and give a little and give them a little bit of relief, they'll serve you forever. He said, okay. So he decided to talk to the young guys he'd grown up with. What do you think I should do? They said, "You tell him if you thought my dad was tough, I'm even tougher. I'm gonna, I'm gonna really punish you." And so that's what he did. He went to Jeroboam and he said, "Don't come to me. Don't come to me looking for relief. I'm the boss, and what I say goes." And from that point on, there was a split in Israel. David's throne was left with only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. They became known as the nation of Judah. They still had Jerusalem. They still had the temple. But the northern ten tribes took the name Israel, and they, their capital was in Samaria. Jeroboam, that young man, became their first king. And he built temples in Bethel and Dan, two cities in the northern kingdom, and put golden calves in them, which you, you want to say, well, hadn't he read Exodus? But what he was doing was he was saying, listen, our people keep taking pilgrimages three times a year to Jerusalem. And every time they do, they're going to go down there and they're going to think, boy, we sure miss being being uh, associated with our fellow Jews down here. Uh, maybe we should get back together. Well, I don't want that to happen. Let's give them a place to worship up here so they don't have to go to Jerusalem. Of course, none of this was the will of God. But he was doing what was politically expedient, what was good for his political success. And so this is what he did. He made these two temples, these alternate temples, and and said, these are temples of the Lord. These are temples of Yahweh. But they weren't the ones... Uh, ordained by God, and they weren't done. They, they weren't using the Levites as priests. They weren't uh, doing things the way God wanted them to. He was doing this for his own sake. So that's the split between the two kingdoms. Fast forward about 200 years. The king on the throne in Hosea's time was also named Jeroboam. So we call him Jeroboam II or the deuce. Nobody calls him that. I just made that up. But uh, you can read about him if you want to know the details of his life in 2 Kings chapter 14. It's not a long section, but what it tells you is that Jeroboam II was a very effective king from a military and political standpoint. Uh, Israel enjoyed more prosperity than they'd had since the days of Solomon, and they even won some battles and, and got back some of the land they'd lost down through the years as other nations had invaded and just picked off little chunks of their territory. Well, now they start to reclaim it because Jeroboam's winning battles and Jeroboam's doing things right and, and and good things are happening. However, spiritually, he was an evil king. You know, if you ever read the books of Kings and Chronicles, you'll see that. So-and-so, son of so-and-so was born and it, it either says he was a good king like his father David or he was an evil king like his father whatever. Well, Jeroboam II was an evil king. He... Uh, and, and what that usually boils down to is that was a, uh, an evil king is a king who does not root out the idolatry of the land, allows the, allows the people to chase after foreign gods, allows people to do things that are against the will of God. Because here's one thing we need to understand. The king of Old Testament Israel or Judah was different than any other ruler in any other time in history because that's the only time in history, that little several hundred years of time, where the king of the people... Was supposed to be the the spiritual leader too. I mean, we we don't when we elect a president, we don't elect the high priest, right? We want him to be a moral person. We want him to be someone who who uh, is friendly towards the gospel. But we're not electing a spiritual leader. We're electing a political leader. But in in Israel's case, the king was a link between the people and God because if he didn't punish evil in the land, then the people didn't fulfill the covenant. If he didn't Send his armies out to burn all the idolatrous shrines up in the up in the mountain places, right? Then the people would follow Baal and they'd follow Molech and Ashtra and all those false gods. And, and the, the people would go further and further, and so the, the covenant would be broken. You see how important the position of king was, and how important it was, not just that the king was a good politician or or an effective general, but that he actually was a godly person, someone who loved the Lord. Jeroboam wasn't. So Part of what happened in Israel during his time is injustice increased. And what that meant was, yeah, there was a lot of money in Israel in those days. And so you got I, I assume you could, based on well, when we get to Hamas, you'll see him talking about this. I assume that when you went through Samaria, the capital city, and other Israelite cities, you'd see these new houses being built. And some of them were lined with uh, with cedar, and they had ivory pillars. And oh, my goodness, look at the wealth. But that was just a small percentage of the people. The poor were getting poorer, while this small section were getting richer. And so there was this, this divide and there was this injustice. Now, here's something else to know before we get into the book of Hosea. After Jeroboam II died, his own son was assassinated after only half a year on the throne. And that was the beginning of a, a period of chaos. There wasn't much left to Israel. By the, uh, within a, a couple of decades, the nation of Assyria invades Israel and wipes out the 10 Northern tribes. Doesn't kill them, I mean kills a lot of them, but carries them off into captivity and they intermarry and they're gone. There's, you know, you, you don't meet somebody now who says, I can trace my lineage to the tribe of Simeon or the tribe of Reuben because those, those tribes are lost to history because of this. So what you see with Hosea is he's the last of Israel's prophets before that happens. He's their last chance prophet. He's their deathbed prophet, you might say. Okay, you're on the deathbed, Israel. This is your last chance to repent and get right. And that's what the book of Hosea is about. But it's, it's written in a way different than any other prophetic book of the Bible. So let's look at chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom." And have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. See, what's unusual about Hosea is the first section, and that's all we're going to look at tonight, is a, is the story of Hosea's family. We go one chapters one, two, three. We hear about Hosea's family, and then the rest of the book doesn't really touch on it at all. Although what I hope to show next week is it really does. That Hosea's family story is a way of showing Israel in microcosm, this is who you are. You're my family, and so what's happening in Hosea's family is happening in my family with you. Now, what happens here is God tells Hosea to do a shocking thing. He tells this prophet, this man of God, to marry a woman that he knows is going to be unfaithful. Now, the ESV uses the word whoredom, which I hope is a word you don't run around using. It's not one I run around using. Uh, there's there's arguments over what that means. Does this mean a woman with a history of uh, of unfaithfulness, uh, a woman who uh, is just known to have loose morals, or does it mean she's a woman who's literally a prostitute already? You know, with, with the proliferation of idol worship in Israel, there was... Cult prostitution involved in that. Some of those false gods you'd go to—that was part of the worship of them. So it could be that Gomer, his wife, was one of those. We don't know. Either way, this is a, this is somebody who. Let's just face it: if your pastor was single and you heard he was marrying a woman like this, you would lose your mind for good reason. You'd say, "This can't happen. We can't let him do this." He's, first of all, what he's going to do to himself. Second of all, the disgrace he's going to bring on our church. We've got to stop this. So Hosea does this shocking thing. And that's not as unusual as you might think unless you really dig into the Old Testament because God was often using His prophets in these ways. He was often telling His prophets to do symbolic actions that were shocking. See, we think of prophecy as being, oh, they stand up and they preach and they foretell the future. Prophecy was really more like God taking a... a, a, stick and whacking somebody who's not listening. Hey, listen up. Listen up. You, you, you're, not, you're not listening to the Word of God, so I'm sending this prophet to go poke you in the, in the nose, uh, to poke you in the rear end, you know, to kick you around until you listen. And sometimes they wouldn't hear just words, as shocking as those might be. Sometimes they had to do shocking things. So for instance, in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel's wife dies. And we know that Ezekiel loved his wife because God told him, you're about to lose the delight of your eyes. He doesn't say you're about to lose your wife. You're about to lose the delight of your eyes. The one that your eyes delight in is about to die. And God tells him, but I, want you to, I want you to not mourn. Don't weep. Don't put on your mourning clothes. Just go on about your business. And because you love your wife so much, everybody's going to say, what in the world's gotten into Ezekiel? We thought he'd fall apart. And he's going to say, here's that you'll get your you'll get their attention then you say this is what this means later on he, he commands Ezekiel to lay down on his side for months at a time and, and to preach in that posture I don't know he must have given him some supernatural chiropractic work or something because that I don't know how you could do that but God can God can do those kinds of things uh, Jeremiah you might recall wore an iron yoke around his shoulders as a symbolic action. Is, Isaiah tops them all. He went about uh, naked and barefoot, it says. I don't know if that means completely or not. The Bible's not clear, but either way, it was that it got people's attention, I'm sure. So Hosea's bad marriage, his marriage to a woman that none of us would want our son to marry, that none of us would, if we were single, marry ourselves. You might think, oh my goodness, that should have disqualified him from being a prophet. But in reality, it made him more qualified. It made him a better prophet. Why? Because it showed people how God himself felt. God was saying, look at what happened to my servant, Hosea. Look at how unhappy he is now. Look look at what he's going through. That's what I'm going through. And the people would start to get the message. Oh, we understand now. We're Gomer. We're the unfaithful woman. But before there's unfaithfulness, before there's an abandonment, there are children. So verse three, verse 4, "...and the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel." This is her firstborn. She gave birth to a son. "...call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel." And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, what is that about? So there's a story. This is another thing about Hosea is Hosea knew his history. And there's a lot of references to Israelite history that you can read about in the Bible. And this is one of them. So when I when Elijah was alive, you remember who was king when Elijah was alive, king and queen? Ahab and Jezebel, right? So when Elijah and Jezebel were on the throne, or when uh, Ahab and Jezebel were on the throne, uh, Elijah, actually it was Elisha, his his predecessor or his follower, uh, who went and, and got an Israeli general named Jehu and said, listen, God's had enough. It's time for you to take out the whole family of Ahab. And he did. Jehu just goes on the war path and he's the one who ends up, you know, having Jezebel thrown down from the tower, and the dogs ate her flesh, and, you know, there's all these gruesome details of the things he did to the family of Ahab, but he, he wiped them from the face of the earth in the judgment of God. Now, we look back on that and say, well, you know, that's good, because evil people deserve what's coming to them, but imagine being alive in Israel at that time, and finding out that the ruling family of your nation has been completely killed in brutal ways. I mean, that's chaos. That's that's heartbreaking. So to name a son Jezreel is like today to name a son Ground Zero or Chernobyl. You know, you, you hear a word like that and you think, oh, you're, you're naming him disaster. And God's point is when people walk up and they say, oh, what a cute little boy. What's his name? Jezreel. Why would you name him that? Well, because God's going to bring that kind of judgment on this nation one more time. And when he says, blood of the house of Jehu, Jeroboam was the last of the kings who were sons of Jehu. So if that makes sense. Verse six, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the son of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or horsemen. So his second child is named No Mercy, lo Rahama is the, is the Hebrew pronunciation, terrible name to give a little girl. By the way, notice it doesn't say that she was, uh, that she was Hosea's daughter. She may not have been. It, it says Jezreel was his son, but it doesn't say that his next two belonged to him. And in fact, when ke- people would come along and say, what's this little girl's name, and he'd say lo they'd go, oh my goodness, what a terrible name. Because it's essentially saying, I don't love this child. I have no mercy on this child. And so they would assume, well, she must not be his. He must be angry that this is a child of, of, uh, of harlotry, a child of adultery. And that's why he gave her such a, an awful, awful name. It gets worse. Verse 8. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now this one, Lo-Ami, the name of this third boy, would have really shocked people. Because this idea of, you are my people, I am your God, that's covenant language. If there was anything that the Israelites took pride in and found security in, it was the fact that they were the people of God. They were the chosen ones. You know, they didn't have anything else going for them. They weren't a big nation. By now, they weren't wealthy anymore. Even though Jeroboam had increased their wealth, they weren't, in the sight of the other nations around them, they weren't great. But they were the people of God, and God had always come through for them in the past. Think about all those stories from the book of Judges and Kings and all those miraculous rescues. And God's saying, you're not my people anymore. That's what this son's name means. But but notice what happens next. Notice there's a turn in verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. That's that's language from God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Your your offspring will be like the sand of the sea for number, he told him. You're going to have so many people, you won't even be able to count them. So what's God doing here? He's saying, okay, I'm, I'm giving you all this bad news, but it doesn't mean I'm done with you. And we're going to see this in the book of Hosea, this back and forth. Here's the, here's the destruction that's coming, but there's still hope. Here's, here's the awful things you're going to experience, but if you trust in me, I'll bring you back. Back and forth he goes. He continues in verse 10. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint themselves one head. He's talking about someday there's not going to be a divided kingdom anymore. There's going to be one people, one people of God, and there's going to be one person leading them. Now, you and I, as New Testament people, we know that that never really gets totally fulfilled in this life, not yet. That Jesus is the one who's going to lead the the final people of God. But Hosea doesn't know that. He just knows God's planning it. And then he says, and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now there's that name again. And here's here's something I learned when I was preparing for this. I'd I'd never learned this in all the times I've read Hosea. So why does he say that? The name Jezreel, not only is it a reference to a city where this awful thing happened all these years before, but in Hebrew, it means God sows, S-O-W-S, God plants. So, I think what he's saying is, I've planted you, and someday you're going to pop out of the ground. There's going to be a resurrection of the people of God. Remember, some of you know the book of Ezekiel, and the valley of the dry bones, and Ezekiel comes upon, has this vision, all these bones laying in a valley, and all of a sudden they snap together into skeletons, and Moses, and Ezekiel's like, well... I don't know what to make of this. What am I going to do with all these dead bodies? And suddenly they stand on their feet and they're covered with flesh and they're breathing in and out. And God says, this is what I'm going to do to my people. You think you're dead, but I'm going to bring you back to life. And that's what God's promising here at the end of chapter one. Now let's move to chapter two, verse two. So in between story, there's a little bit of explanation. Verse 2, he says, Plead with your mother. Plead. This is Hosea speaking. For she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. What has happened is it's Hosea explaining to his children, your mother has left us. And now God is saying, the people of God have left me. Now think about it this way. In the the analogy of Hosea's family in Israel, the children represent the people. They've been abandoned by their mother. Well, who's the mother? It's the institutions of Israel. It's the king. It's the priests. It's the temple. It's all the, all the rules and, and, and rituals. It's all that stuff that was supposed to guide them to the truth. Well, all of that's been twisted and turned towards adultery, idolatry with other gods. And so the children are left behind. And God is explaining to them, listen, I've got to punish your mother. I've got to. She has abandoned me. And you're just going to have to understand. You're just going to have to see why we're so lonely for for this next little while. Look at verse 7. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. God is saying, When things get rough for her, she's going to want to come back. Israel's going to want to come back. Just like a a spouse who has left and realizes, oh my gosh, I'm way unhappier now than I was back when I was married. I need to go back to my husband, back to my wife. God says that's going to happen with Israel. She's going to realize the error of her ways when I take away my protection from her. Verse 8 And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. So what he's saying is bad times are coming. Bad times are coming for the the people of Israel, but it's going to bring them back to me. And in a sense, that's what Hosea is going to have to say to his children. Your mom has left us, and things are gonna get really bad for her. And that's what's gonna bring her back to us. Now look at verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. This is God talking about a wife who has abandoned him. I'm gonna win her back. I'm not going to say good riddance. And when I hear that she's having trouble, I'm not going to say, "Well, you brought this on yourself." I'm going to go and win her back. I'm going to allure her. I'm going to woo her. He says, "I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, and I will give her a vineyard. I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Acor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt." What's this valley of Acor stuff? All right, so. Another story, and this one from the book of Joshua. Remember Joshua is the guy who follows after Moses and actually leads the people across the Jordan River into the Promised Land and they fight all these battles and it's a real exciting book. But there's one defeat that we don't often talk about. Right after Jericho, they march around Jericho, the walls come tumbling down, they swoop in, they win this incredible battle. Right after that, there's this tiny little village called Ai. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. It's, it's literally spelled A-I. Tiny village. And they say, you know, we don't even, don't even need to send many people over there. That's, that's going to be easy. So they just send a, a little detachment, and that detachment gets defeated. And the people mourn and weep because they didn't think they'd ever be beaten. They were God's army. And so Joshua says, something's gone wrong. God promised us we'd never be beaten. And they, they stand before the Lord and they say, what has happened? And they determine what it happened was... A man in the army of of Israel named Achan had gone into Jericho and taken some of the loot for himself. They weren't supposed to take any loot. This was not a battle to get rich. But he took some furniture, he took some gold and some silver, and that's what caused the defeat. And so they they stoned him to death there for his crime, and they called it the Valley of Achor, which means trouble. Hosea says that valley is now going to be a door of hope. A place that used to be disgrace is going to be a place that we associate with joy, with hope, with excitement about the future. So the end of chapter 2, verse 16 says, And in that day declares the Lord, You will call me my husband, and no longer you will call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. He's talking about peace, which has to sound good. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and injustice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. And the day that I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow for her myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So if you're worried about the children of Hosea, the end of chapter 2 tells us he gives his daughter a new name. She's no longer called No Mercy. Now her name's Mercy. It's a good name. His son is no longer called not my people. Now his name is my people. Jezreel keeps his name because now it no longer refers to the day of destruction. It refers to the fact that God sows in the ground and it, it sprouts. He's talking about resurrection. So those kids get new names. Those kids get new names because God is saying, my people will have a new name. Now here's the end of the story, chapter three. And the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man, and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Just so you know, God's not mad at Israel because they like raisins. Okay, that's not what this is about. If you're a person that likes oatmeal raisin cookies, this doesn't mean you can't eat those. That was just that was raisin cakes were something that were used in the ancient world as as an object of worship, and these were. This was a way that the Israelites were worshiping these false gods. It says, verse two, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. By the way, I didn't know this. I had to find this out. 15 shekels is not much. And the fact that he had to throw in some barley tells us Hosea probably paid all the money he had plus some. So he was a poor man and he gave it all to buy back his wife. Buy her back from who? Well, chances are she's had to sell herself into slavery. Either she went back into prostitution and that's who he's buying her from, or she went off with some other man, he abandoned her and she's had to sell herself into slavery just to get by and Hosea's buying her from her slave master. Either way, either way, Hosea is buying back this one who has broken his heart. Now look at the rest verse 3 and i said to her you must dwell as mine for many days you shall not play the whore or belong to another man so I'll, so will i also be to you for the children of israel shall dwell many days without king or prince without sacrifice or pillar without ephod or household gods afterward the children of israel shall return and seek the lord their god and david their king and they shall come in fear to me fear to the lord and to his goodness in the latter days so hosea goes buys back his wife says, that's it, you're mine forever, and I will be yours. Now, of course, a man can't guarantee that his wife will be faithful any more than a woman can guarantee her husband will be faithful, but you would think that the best way a man can win his wife's everlasting fidelity is to say, no matter what you've done to me, I'm going to give everything for you. That kind of extraordinary love, if if that can't win somebody's heart, nothing can. And so, Faithless as Israel was, this is what God was offering to His people. And just picture the response of the people who saw this take place. When they heard that Gomer had left him, they probably thought, well, okay, that's what we thought would happen. And then heard that she'd fallen into slavery. Well, that's what she deserves. But when he goes and buys her, that's even more shocking than the fact that he married her in the first place. That's, in a, in a sense degrading himself by buying back a woman who had had humiliated and hurt him. And so it got their attention once again. And so now he's able to preach to them the rest of the message, which is what we'll look at next week. And he'll explain in the rest of the book how his story, what you just saw me do, he says, this is our story. Let me show you what it's about. So that's what we'll talk about next week. Let me just close with this. In Ephesians 5, 25 through 32, whenever we get to Ephesians 5, everybody wants to focus on wives submit to your husbands, but notice what comes next. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. I, I love the fact that in the Bible, the perfect husband, the ideal husband, is a man who was never married to a woman, and that was Jesus Christ. He is the ideal husband because he gave his life, he gave his everything, to win back a woman, us, who is nothing but unfaithful to him, not to make her his slave, but it says, to wash her with water by the word and present her to himself as a radiant bride. So. He has brought us back into the family to make us into what we were always supposed to be, to bring us joy, to bring us glory. And someday, that's that wedding feast of the Lamb, the day we stand before God face to face. That's what we have to look forward to. So all through the Scriptures, we see this whole picture of the unstoppable love of God in spite of our sin. All right, any questions? All right. Let me close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, your love is amazing. And I thank you that it is so faithful, beyond faithful, Lord. Not only do you never cheat on us, and even more so, you are faithful to forgive our unfaithfulness, our wandering eye, and our lack of love for you. And you don't give up. You continue to pursue us and you continue to work on us and change us and Help us become all we were created to be. Lord, help us to grow in our love for you and our faithfulness to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.